Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Well, welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Danny Spletsdosser, Vice President, Origination and Investor Relations at Renewable Energy Systems Americas. Danny's experience in renewable energy professional with an extensive experience in business development and project development. His specialties include public policy, renewable energy, transaction structuring, and power marketing. Danny, that's a that's a mouthful, and hopefully you can help explain that a little bit further down the line. But how are you doing this beautiful Friday, man? Doing good. You know, it's another day in you know Groundhog Day life of COVID. I appreciate you having me on. And yes, Bloodstosser is a nameful, and and my. My career journey as well has been, you know, almost as meandering as my last name. <laughs> but you know what? It, it builds character and, and it adds a lot of value to whatever it is that you're doing. And I mean, shoot, similarly to oil and gas, we all jump around and have different, you know, whether it's different cities, countries, job titles. So, you know, we're familiar with that on oil and gas side of things. So makes a rich life. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Where are you joining us from today? Yeah, I live in Arvada, Colorado. So just on the west side of Denver here. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm actually tentatively planning on heading up there over the next couple of weeks to visit some customers. And so it's always nice to head back to Denver. And although I would love to do this in person, unfortunately, I just my time schedules doesn't allow but nonetheless, appreciate you coming on the show. So I guess just for context for the listeners, we actually met through the University of Colorado's Global Energy Management Program, which is hosting you as the executive and resident. How's the experience been so far? And, and what does that really entail for you? I mean, it's been great for the students. It's really been energizing for me. My background is sort of a liberal arts background, and I'm really just a people person. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy at the CU GEM program as a residence. It's a little bit of guest lecturing, a lot of career mentorship. A lot of folks are in sort of thinking about career transitions or retooling skill sets. I've really just enjoyed being able to meet new people, hear their experience, and be able to share, you know, insights that I have, whether it be about advancing current careers or changing careers, even changing industries. And it's been really energizing for me. So while, you know, you know, CU Gem asked me to be the executive in residence, man, I should be thanking them because it's been, you know, really helpful for me and just having a little bit more pep in my step on on an average day. There you go. It's been cool. And they when you first sort of when they announced it, they said, Hey, you know, if you guys want to meet Danny, he'd be welcome to jump on a call. And so that, you know, one thing led to the next. And, you know, I think a lot of, you know, our thoughts and, you know, our values aligned. And so I was like, man, come on the show. And so I'm glad you came on. But before we get going, I just want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. So Technip FMC's FrackNow ecosystem leverages flexible pipe, automation, and advanced digital technology to deliver greater operational efficiency. 
increased uptime, lower non-productive time, remote operations, access to automation, and real-time data logging are just a few of the benefits. Find out more by clicking the link in the show notes. So Danny, I'm sure everyone got caught off guard when I introduced you as VP of a renewables company. So everyone out there, don't worry, Danny will not try to convince us to go buy electric vehicles. Although I do want the new Cybertruck and everyone's going to laugh at me. I think it's super cool. So, <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. And actually, funny enough, I was with a customer the other day who's a drilling engineer and he has a big diesel truck and then he's got a Tesla. So he's, he's dancing on both sides of the fence, which is super cool. But nonetheless, things that go fast are fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless of how they're powered, we like to go That's fast. Right. That's yeah, right. E- exactly. So let's take a trip down memory lane. Danny, where are you from originally? Yeah, I was actually born and raised in the mountains of Colorado. Grew up at about 9,000 feet. My backyard was national forest and yeah, grew up you know, hiking, biking, ski racing. It was a great place to be from and, and still always have dreams of going back up into the hills. My dad worked in mining. He was an engineer. And you know, I think that combination of, for me, of being, you know, having a really nice natural environment to grow up in, and the understanding that if you intelligently utilize the resources around you, you can put food on the table. And so, you know, that combination really has sat with me. And, and though I didn't know it at the time, you know, growing up as a kid, you just, you know, grow up in the mountains to have fun. It really sort of shaped me and I think helped, you know, to shape why I do what I do. And so I, I really walked that balance of, you know, preserving what we got and utilizing what we got as best we can but also just trying to put food on the table. And I think that's my approach to my career. And, you know, I believe in the both sides of the house, making money and you know, doing the best for the environment. Yeah. And, and what a better place to do it is in the U.S. and obviously Colorado with an abundance of resources. So I grew up in British Columbia, which, you know, there's a lot of similarities to me just culturally. And, you know, in B.C., you know, northeastern B.C., there's a lot of oil and gas Obviously, you know, in the in the interior, we call it the Okanagan Valley. It's a lot of forestry, a lot of tourism. And so you kind of have a bit of both, but there's certainly, you know, challenges that go along with that. But yeah, growing, for you, I mean, I can, you're closer to the mountains than I am. I'm here in Houston. And so I'm a little further away than, than I'd like to be from back home. But my wife and I were talking about, you know, the, the goal ultimately is to have a, you know, a cabin or a, a place back up back up north there into the mountains because yeah that's who i am i mean i don't rock a beard for no reason i'm a lumberjack at heart for sure i couldn't grow a beard if i tried but you know <laughs> if you'd give me a little cottage you know up in the okanagan i wouldn't complain that's absolutely sure. no man it makes me sad even thinking about it but so let's get back to you so you've got a lengthy career and everything from you know renewable energy intern for the senator working as a solar developer in canada to business development for a wind company to now VP of Renewable Energy Systems. So it seems like you were involved with renewables even before renewables was cool. So so what kind of led you into the, into the path? Yeah, you know, I, I guess as I got out of my undergrad, I kind of had a, a choice in front of me to either, you know, follow the team, you know, the pack of 20-year-olds that run Washington as interns and staffers yeah. or to go back and get a graduate degree. And for me, you know, I, I guess I always thought that you know, our grandparents, you know, if they graduated high school, there's no way that they're going to miss out on the middle class. You know, our parents, you know, so long as they at least got some college education or maybe graduated college, like there's no way you can miss the middle class. And for me, it was just like, well, look, this bar keeps on raising. We kind of need a graduate degree. And if I get one, there's almost no way that I can miss sort of just having a enough economic opportunity to be, make sure I'm in the middle class. And that was important to me. And so I got a master's in natural resource law 
believe me, I have no interest in being a lawyer. I took a couple <laughs> years of law school and at every turn had a chip on my shoulder for the fact that all these you know folks were there to get get JDs. And you know, for me, it just was not, I didn't want to go the billable hour route, but I knew that understanding the policy and legal frameworks within which we work was really, really, really important. And so in that process, I took a few classes that were related to renewable energy. Renewable energy was just starting to pick up in, you know, in places like Germany, particularly. And actually, right before I'd gotten in to graduate school, when I did work on Ken Salazar's U.S. Senate campaign, that was the same year that Colorado passed its renewable portfolio standard for the first time. So they created the first mandate inside the state you know, to have some portion of the electricity come from renewable energy. And so I think the trend of sort of Colorado thinking about it for the first time, seeing a couple other states doing it for the first time, and then, you know, sort of, I just really kind of recognized it as like, look, this is a growing industry. And if I get in early to a high growth industry, quite frankly, I don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed. I don't have to be the best of the best. Sure. I just got to be, you know, the smartest guy in the dumb class, um, which is... <laughs> I can identify, trust me. <laughs> hey, man, I'm a liberal arts major from a state school, so it's it's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, so that sort of set me on the path. And I also, though, I was also the kid growing up that loved science classes, man. And so the ability to sort of see the nexus of how science and policy and business could sort of come together, I found that to be pretty interesting. And so I was pretty strong in the science fairly strong on the policy. And, and going in, I was pretty weak on the business side and really spent the last 12 years really growing my economics chops cool, so that I could participate in the market. And so that's kind of how I got there and got lucky early on in a growing industry, graduated just before 2007, 2008 credit crisis and you know, luckily held on through that. And since then, it's been all growth. And, and as you mentioned, sort of a jack of all trades, bouncing around, finding different avenues. And Part of that is just me. I'm not a specialist. I truly believe in generalists. And I find that being a generalist you know, who focuses on communication, it really enables me to grow within my company and grow within my industry without, I've got less limits, quite frankly. Yeah. No, and, and I think you hit it on the head. There's is communication. And, and I think you know, with us in oil and gas, we do a great job of communicating to ourselves and internally within an industry. But I mean, just through my experience being in oil and gas since 2004, I feel like oftentimes it's us against the world. And while I think people understand that there's certainly a need, I think just the education portion as to like, you know, what, what oil and gas actually provides. And so while this is an oil and gas podcast, I think it's important to showcase that just because we sit on opposite ends of the energy spectrum, we can still have a candid conversation around energy, regardless of where it comes from and, and communicate and coexist, if you will, because honestly, until coming to University of Colorado, I don't think I'd ever even talked to or spoke to someone within the renewable energy sector. And we, you know, ultimately both sides provide energy for the world. And so yeah. I think it's so important and for everyone out there, like, your network probably doesn't have necessarily people within outside of, of oil and gas. And, and if it does, you know, more specific to energy, but again, I think it's, it's cool that we can come together and talk and create awareness and, and have some overlap instead of just constantly being, you know, you against I or I against you because the pie is big enough. And, and so it's not like 
you know, while there's a bunch of headlines and stuff that actually I want to talk to you and get your more, I guess, opinion on is, is, you know, like full displacement of fossil fuels and think, you know, like, you know, because again, like things like the Green New Deal, you know, that was proposed all of a sudden, you know, like, while everyone is aware that there's initiatives to go that way, I don't suspect it being like a flip of a dime. And so I guess before we get into that, I really just want to ask what your current thoughts are on our US energy as a whole. And by that, I mean, you know, where do we stand within energy, maybe energy security? I mean, it's a very blanket question. And so whatever comes to mind, just take the stage. Yeah, yeah. Well, first and foremost, I appreciate you for inviting me on. I really try to flatly reject entering into that echo chamber where you only hear the voices that, you know, most, you know, most strongly affirm my current point of view. (laughs) Yeah. And so being able to really broaden the conversation amongst people that don't have the same set of experiences as me, don't have necessarily the same viewpoint as me, and still being able to find decency and commonality. And, you know, coming from a project development background, you know, I've developed wind projects in very rural parts of, you know, Texas, solar projects in extremely rural parts of, you know, Mississippi and Alabama and and Arkansas, wind projects in extreme, you know, remote places of Nova Scotia. (laughs) Yeah. And even kicked around on a few wind projects up in the interior BC, actually. And so, you know, in those sort of situations, I'm usually not faced with the people that, you know, have those sort of West Coast or East Coast high environmental mentalities. You know, I get to speak with people who, you know, use the land and work the land to put food on their table. And I actually, though in the last couple of years have started, you know, my career has taken me further and further and further away from the kitchen table conversations that's the part that I miss the most. Finding people that, again, don't come from my background that I would have never been able to be able to meet just sort of in my random trips through life. Like, because it brought, you know, I was brought to communities and places that are, you know, not a place that I would typically stop, maybe, maybe drive through or fly over. It really, yeah. it really actually has enriched my life and I've developed really great friendships. And so, I, again, I appreciate what you're saying about sort of bringing, you know, not being, not thinking about it, it being in you know, left or right, gas or renewables. We are part of a holistic, you know, power sector. And, you know, for me, you know, I work in a portion that we are, you know, we are changing the way, you know, we're, we're choosing technologies and changing the way that we generate, a, you know, electricity. But I am under sort of, I'm not kidding myself in that most of the energy that comes out of the lights in most of the places in the country is predominantly coal and gas generation. And though that changes over time, and I do believe that there's value in choosing the best technology we have available at our fingertips today, right? going forward, I'm also not, you know, the change that is happening is happening, I think, faster than many people expected. And we can talk a little bit about tipping points. But it's not radical. And quite frankly, it's not even in many cases, it's not even sort of a left-wing political agenda that's driving it. It's dollars and cents. Right. It's what is the cheapest thing, you know, what's the next cheapest thing that we can put on? What's the you know, next best technology we can do? And it's not, you know, the challenge, I think, that I see for renewable energy, and we can you know, go down this sort of direction as well, is the first sort of 
integrating the first little bit, or maybe we can talk about it in thirds, maybe for purposes of ease, adding the first third of renewable energy into the existing grid, relatively easy, particularly when the cost points become competitive. Integrating the second third is a little bit more challenging, but we have the technology and for the most part, the cost today to make that happen. That last third is going to be really challenging. And what that means is oil and gas, and particularly natural gas gen, is going to be around for a long time to help us make that long-term transition. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so when you say, when you're talking about costs, and that's one thing that, you know, just through research, and, and of course, you know, a lot of people are headline readers. It's, you know, you look at articles coming out of, or showcasing, you know, Germany and part of, you know, Europe is, they're, they're making strong efforts and going, you know, on the renewable side of things, but it comes down, you know, oh, look at their electricity costs and look at the downside to that. And then over here, a lot of times, oh, you know, the costs are coming down, but it's still heavily subsidized. And while I think a lot of people still, or maybe don't, are not aware of the subsidies still within the oil and gas industry, you know, so that's, you know, argument to be had there as well. But what, what do you say, or what's your response to people saying, oh, well, it's, it's too expensive and, and we'll never get there because our electricity bills are going to go through the roof. And, you know, like what's, yeah, what's your yeah, thoughts yeah. on that? So, I mean, I think if we look at countries like, you know, Germany, like Japan, that were early in some of the adoption of, you know, renewable energy technologies, those are places where there are a lot of people and not a lot of resources. I mean, Germany was shipping in coal. Germany was piping in gas from Germany or from Russia. And, and so their choice, the choices that they have are, you know, choices between one very expensive resource or another relatively expensive resource. And in the case of Germany, they really were making choices a lot of times for national security reasons. You know, Germany went a little bit more coal, France went more nuclear, but they did so that they, so that they could sort of decouple themselves from the risk of having, you know, their fuel stock be cut off from Eastern Europe. So I think when, if we look just to other countries and say, well, we're, if we start down a renewable energy path, we'll end up having, you know, electricity prices being 10 times what we currently have in the United States. I don't think that really appreciates the fact that we are blessed with incredible amounts of space and a lot of great resources. And so I think that's one place that maybe people sometimes steer themselves wrong. Mm, okay. Another way to think about it is, yeah, on subsidized basis, you know, we are getting subsidized as an industry. And I you know, appreciate that you point out that oil and gas industry also has subsidies embedded there as well. Quite frankly, in the United States, we do not have a comprehensive energy policy. What we have is we use tax policy as our de facto energy policy. And so we use the tax policy to help subsidize elements and and try and drive investment both into extraction production as well as into the production of renewable electricity generation. And so for me, yeah, I would be much happier if we started going down a route where we were normalizing and eliminating those subsidies across the board and so that it's a little bit more transparent because it's not always so clear, okay, well, what is the real cost of this? Because, you know, quite frankly, the taxpayers of New York and California are paying for Texas and Iowa to have cheap electricity. Hmm. 
And so, you know, a lot of the red states in the middle that are getting a lot of the renewable energy generation are actually net benefiters to that subsidy. That being said, you know, on a subsidized basis, we are today the cheapest form of new generation that you can get on the grid. We are cheaper not just than, you know, a new natural gas plant. We are cheaper in some markets, particularly, you know, what we see in Texas and in the Southeast portions as well of sort of the, again, sort of the resource middle of the country, we're cheaper than what's already on the grid. And that's why you're seeing, you know, hedged merchant projects where people are selling the the power directly into the wholesale market and placing long-term hedges just to cover, cover their investment. And so, you know, another big trend in my industry has been the rise of what they call the virtual PPA. This is when a large commercial and industrial company. And it started with companies like Microsoft and Google, but it's really, you know, transitioned to, you know, companies like General Motors, General Mills, Kohler, Royal Caribbean, like people who, you know, again, don't really espouse the sort of Bay Area sort of view of life. They espouse the what makes money or what, you know, what hedges off my risk long term. And so these virtual PPAs are coming up and they work because effectively the power purchaser can buy power for long term at cheaper than if they were to buy that same amount of power off of the wholesale market. So we are cheaper than what's currently on the wholesale market and we're projected over the next 15 years to increasingly become less and less and less expensive than what's available on the wholesale market, which is driven mostly by natural gas generation. Right. So I guess that kind of leads me into my next question is with regards to like discussion about completely like you're talking about, you know, costs coming down. What you're speaking of seems like there's some good benefit there. Are there a lot of people that really feel that completely displacing fossil fuels is going to be something that's feasible? Or do you think that, you know, say things like natural gas, I mean, talk power generation, because that's kind of what we're talking about is like, do you feel like there's going to need to be a transition? Or do you feel like there could potentially be, you know, costs aside, a full displacement, like, because that that seems to be a common topic. So the simple answer is that there will be some displacement, there will be quite a lot of displacement total displacement is going to be really challenging. And if we think about, you know, a lot of times you can fit, you know, simple concepts, but, you know, the thought of a diverse portfolio, you know, when you do investing, you're always told, hey, have a diverse portfolio. And I believe that diverse, a diverse portfolio should mean that we should have a balance and that relying on a single source of generation will always pose challenges. Whereas if we have a diversity of generation, you know, wind to provide, you know, morning, evening, you know, winter months, you know, more baseload generation, solar for that time of day where we've got, you know, when it's sun's high and the AC loads high, we've got generation, natural gas for the places when, you know, we have smoky days or cloudy days, coal, I think there will continue to be a future for coal in some places where you need that sort of hard base load and you've got like long-term, particularly winter peaks. And then, you know, nuclear generation as well will be part of the mix that we will need to be able to meet our carbon reduction goals, which I do personally believe are important. You're going to need to have that mix in. All right. So 
for all the listeners out there, it probably doesn't sound like I've flown however many thousands or maybe about a thousand miles to come meet Danny. But when we were recording, it was over Zoom and I have Xfinity. And sure enough, halfway through the episode, the internet goes down and I call Danny and I tell him, you know what, we're probably going to have to make this work another time because they were doing some maintenance on a Friday of all days, which maybe they think people don't work on Fridays, but <laughs> not in the time of COVID. Yeah. Not remote. Yeah. Never. Right. Exactly. So it was, I looked at, I went on my Xfinity app on my phone and said, Oh, sorry for the inconvenience. We're doing some routine maintenance. Your internet won't be available until 5 PM. And it was like nine o'clock in the morning. So you know, I happen to actually have a business meeting in Denver. And so here we are in beautiful Arveda, Colorado. So thanks for the hospitality yeah, hosting welcome. me in your hometown. Yeah, welcome. Here we are, fall colors and a nice day and a beer in hand. So it is uh, absolutely, it's for all the Houstonians and anyone in the South, you'd be super jealous right now. It's about 73 degrees and probably zero humidity. And so it's, it is extremely nice. And yeah, I'm happy to get back behind the mic in person. So this is, this is certainly a nice, a nice treat. So yeah. But yeah, I mean, let's continue on the conversation. So I wanted to ask you right now, what is the biggest challenge or hurdle that renewables is facing? Is, is it, you know, is it investments? Is it technology? I mean, what's, what's the hurdle you're up against right now, you think, if any? I think, so this will be a little bit sort of maybe North American centric, US centric. Mm-hmm. The biggest challenge that we have is really scaling to meet the demand. That's a pretty recent maybe pivot point. I would say even as recent as, you know, four or five years ago, I would say that generally for the folks that buy the power, it was a buyer's market. The PPA holders really could dictate terms, could dictate price, and it was an infinite race to zero. What is PPA for those who are Yeah, power purchase agreement. So just to maybe take a step back, when we, because our fuel is free, Mm -hmm. but we're putting a massive capital investment, we need to have a long-term contract. Okay. That long-term contract is for the sale of the power. You know, sometimes in some markets, people will just do a hedge, like a long-term hedge. But the traditional process is to really find somebody who needs the electricity. Mm-hmm. It used to be a utility. Then it started turning into financial hedges. And now it's really a lot of Fortune 500 companies hmm. that are moving towards meeting carbon goals. And whether it be the utilities or in Canada provinces or, you know, whatnot, it was really sort of, there were more projects and more concepts than there were, you know, buyers. Okay. And and now today, I think the market is short, capable projects and and capable solutions. Hmm. And so what we're seeing is really an increase in demand. I mean, an easy way to think about it is if you see somebody like Microsoft or Unilever or... You know, somebody put up an RE100 goal, meaning that they want to make 100% of their energy come from renewable energy Mm -hmm. over a certain period of time. There weren't all that many of them out there maybe five years ago. Right. And now we've sort of passed a tipping point. And, you know, quite frankly, we're just at a spot where we have to meet the market demand, which is a good spot to be in if you're a project developer and seller. But at the end of the day, you know, we need to help find the solutions and and to be able to, you know, find the solutions for states, municipalities, in some cases, countries, and now the Fortune 500 to meet their, you know, reduced carbon goals is is really the one of the challenges that we have. And, you know, we've doubled 
you know, when you're doubling from next to nothing, <laughs> right? It's not that big of a double, right? Yeah. The market could probably do it, but now we're talking about, you know, we are the more wind and solar was installed globally last year yeah. than all other renewable energy combined, more than coal and natural gas, more than, and so to take that and double it again, that's going to be challenging and it's going to be challenging for my a siting process. Yeah. It's going to be challenging to some degree from a capital process, you know, capital intensity. You're, there's yeah. A, we're talking about trillions of dollars of investment. No kidding. Yeah. And so I think that that scaling of the industry, it's been happening. It will continue to happen, but it, there's a lot, there's just a lot more, I don't think there's technical problems. I don't think there's big challenge. It's really just process of getting enough man hours enough right people hours into these projects to build them and then make them happen so i have a couple of questions on that but so talking about man hours is there more demand for talent like is a renewables like saying hey like we need people come yes. join the movement if you will absolutely I mean, and, and it's not really a movement this is you know we need lawyers we need engineers right we need salespeople. right we need marketing people we need accountants like, right Accountants don't care whether you're selling. So I see, you know, I have friends that have businesses, my own company, heck, my own team. You know, we've got open positions. And what we're looking for is just people who really like the entrepreneurial, the innovative, and, you know, nature of this business. And, and, and you know, we do look for people that find meaning in it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, we need capable, smart, hungry people who want to succeed. And, you know, I've always said that I have, I was fortunate that I came into this industry when I did. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I came in at early into a growing industry. Yeah. And if you're in an industry that's doubling and doubling again, quite frankly, it's easy for even a slightly above average person like me to really grow myself. For sure. And be part of the industry. So it's been it's been really enjoyable for me. No, it sounds like it. Because of the growth, it sounds like there's exponential growth and, and it's going to continue to grow. And I mean, you see whether it's countries, cities, municipalities, companies setting these goals. I mean, obviously the demand is there and, 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 and the efforts are going to be made. Do you think often some of the goals that are put forth are a little too aggressive for the capabilities like to do actually deliver on those goals? Yeah, no, I think that's a really great question. And that's actually a very pertinent question in the time of really sort of 100% renewable energy goals or yeah. net zero goals. Often what we see is with those goals is they have you know, longer time horizons, 2035, 2050. Right. Mm-hmm. And to answer that question, you know, clear-eyed today, the answer is today, can we cost-effectively jump from where we're at, which is depending upon, you know, if you're in Iowa, you're at 41% renewables. If you're in you know, Colorado, you're at like 21%. And, you know, if you're in Texas, you're around the same spot. But go from there right. to 100, do we have that technology and capability to cost effectively do that today? No, absolutely not. Right. But one of the things that I've, this industry has taught me is that is really never underestimate the sort of, really the ability of aggregating incremental demand mm. or incremental gains, I should say. Fundamentally, Solar in particular, it's a technology play. Right. And whenever I go to a kitchen table of a landowner, I really 
just talk about the fact that this is technology. This is not traditional power generation. And in traditional power generation, you really just have to make things bigger mm. in order to get more power and get more scale out of the actual power plant. Right. In wind, which is the closest to me, you know, if you want to make the wind turbine more cost effective, you have to make the blades longer. Right. Which means the towers have to be taller, which means the bolts have to be bigger. Right. And more finite element engineering has to go into that aspect. And I think that applies perhaps to a lesser degree in some of the traditional fossil gen. But in solar, I think about it like, you know, going back to the story at the, at the dinner table, I think about it like your flat screen TV. In 2007, when I started participating in this market, your average solar panel is about the same size it is today. Three feet by six feet. Mm. That solar panel produced enough energy to, you know, when you had a good sunny day to power about Oh, five light bulbs of the old incandescent light bulbs. Yeah. And that panel cost, you know, well over a thousand dollars a panel. Fast forward today, that same panel size, three feet by six feet, it produces enough energy to power about six to seven light bulbs. A few more, but not many more. But it costs less than a hundred dollars, more like seventy dollars. And so just that cost decline. Yeah. It's the same thing with your with your TV. I mean, the same dollar amount can buy so much more. Yeah. And that really sort of is driving the majority of the change that we're seeing. It's really just fantastic cost reduction. Yeah. And unlike, you know, every time that you make that little incremental gain, it really has profound effects. Entire swaths of the country that it wasn't quite sunny enough, all of a sudden it's, it's sunny enough. Right. And so... You know, going back to your question about meeting that 100% renewable energy goal today, absolutely not. And, but we do have enough runway to really get to, you know, 50 or 60%. There are quite a few studies that are out there. And I mean, they're, again, you know, I was doing it today. Yeah. You can get to 50 or 60% with today's technology and a flexible grid and good natural gas generation. You really can get there today. To get from, that 60% mark to 90%, you know, clean energy, that takes a that takes a next level of integration. You mm -hmm. have challenges about when it's sunny or windy during the course of a day. And as you get further and further and further past sort of 85 and closing in on 90, you then start running into challenges of, well, it's not about the daily fluctuations, it's about the interannual fluctuations, right? Mm -hmm. You need more power in Houston in the summer than you do in the winter. Sure. If we're gonna be all renewable energy, how do we deal with that interannual change? Yeah. And that's why you're starting to see some of the discussions about green hydrogen and, and the you know evolution of the hydrogen economy. Yeah, no, I know Wood McKenzie and several other well-renowned engineering firms are starting to talk about it. And I did a little, so we had in one of our weekly discussion boards was talking about, you know, renewables. And one of the things that piqued my interest was the hydrogen. And, and I'm definitely not very well versed in it. But I mean, I even seen, I think it was American Airlines doing some concept work on hydrogen airplanes. <laughs> and so it's, it's definitely the R&D is, is happening on the hydrogen side, which I think 
in my opinion, could help fill the gap to getting there. And if we think 30 years out, like, honestly, if you can tell me what's going to happen over the next eight weeks yeah. <laughs> with certainty, right, please yeah. do. Yeah, <laughs> that's so <laughs> or, true, Or man. if you could have the innovation to be able to understand really what technology is going to grow over the next 15 years. Yeah. If we really go past that, like, if you're thinking 30 years out, what's going to be available for us to... I think some of the purpose of those goals is the actual purpose of a goal right. to set a target, a direction mm-hmm. in which we move. And and whether you hit the goal or not, maybe sometimes is not what matters. What matters is that you've aimed for that direction and started moving. Right. And that's where I see a lot of the, to your point, maybe somewhat aspirational directions coming. Yeah. But you know, we can get to 30, 40, even 60% today without really harming the pocketbooks of the average American. Hmm. And and I think that's important. For sure. So we'll continue on the track of decreasing the cost, and that will enable new industries to emerge, like mm-hmm. green hydrogen. That will also, and some of the flexible data computing that you're starting to see, you will also see you know increasing technology to help keep and firm that capacity, and that's what you're seeing in again, sort of the short-term stuff like batteries. Right, right. No, the battery technology is something that interested me. That was one of the projects I did was focused on battery technology and, you know, talking about, because batteries, or, you know, energy storage is one thing that people talk about or it's it's a topic of conversation with regards to, okay, you generate all this electricity during the day or energy. Well, when time... What you know, happens at 7, th- at yeah, 7 once 30. At, yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, and things come into play like the duck curve and stuff uh-huh. like that, which is super interesting. Again, if, if you're not familiar with it, Google it. But having battery storage seems to me like that's going to be something if we could get over that. And I know people like Tesla and whoever else is working on some serious battery storage stuff, things like flow batteries. Is that something that's realistically in the near future going to help get over the hump? Or, I mean, yeah. what are your thoughts on, on it's happened, storage? I mean, it, so... Where solar was in 2007, 8, 9, that's where battery energy storage is today. Okay. It's passing a spot where scaled commercialization is just starting to happen. My company actually did one of the first non-recourse debt-financed battery projects in the U.S. Wow. I think it might have been the first. And it wasn't a lot. And it met a very small use case, so it wasn't an incredible amount of storage. And the amount of scale, there will be challenges, again, when we're talking about scaling. There will be some big challenges in you know, everything from raw materials to manufacturing, etc. But this a similar, not the same, a similar learning curve like we saw in solar where as you increase the scale of the industry, costs continue to decline we see something similar in batteries. And so from 2010, I think I saw something from, I want to make sure this is right. I think it was Bloomberg New Energy Finance from 2010 to 2019. The cost of battery packs went down 87%. Wow, that's huge. So something that was $100, $100 of battery packs in 2010 yeah. is now costing you $13. Right. And so we see that same experience curve so it's never going to go to zero right but it's not about going to zero it's about as you get closer and closer and closer you know more and more and more places happen and so we're seeing 
every one of my solar projects today, they all are either storage ready, meaning that we're preparing the space, both physically and electrically, to add storage mm. for when the cost curve and the market timing is right. Right. Or they have storage built in from at the very beginning. And it might not be 100% storage, so the thing's running, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But let's be clear, most of our power plants, we don't want them to run that way. Right. Most of our power plants, we want to be able to have some flexibility to turn them on and turn them off. And, right. and I think over time, we will be moving towards, you know, most solar power plants will have somewhere between two and four hours of storage hmm. built into them. And today, you can't do that cost effectively in every market. Right. But you're starting, I mean, take a look at what EDF is doing in Nevada. Take a look at what 8-Minute Energy is doing for LEDWP. Uh, granted, those are some you know, very sunny locations with challenges. I don't see that happening tomorrow in Texas, but it won't. It, it's not far off. It's yeah. three to five years out. No kidding. Huh. That's wild. So talking a little bit on the financial perspective of things, where does a lot of the money come from that gets injected into into the you know renewable space? Because I know like oil and gas, it's a lot of VCs, you know, private equity. People are looking for good returns. You know, a lot of projects, a lot of people when they invest money, they're hoping to get returns to pay things off within a few years. So what does that space look like? Are there, is there a lot of dry powder on the sidelines of people waiting to just like dump a bunch of money in and expecting these mass returns? Or is that not quite a yeah, thing in, in I, renewables? I think it's a really pressing question. I was reading before you came over, BP just you know really had their BP week and their share price hit a 25 year low Yeah. today on this transition that BP is doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, what oil and gas provided in terms of sort of really, you know, higher double digit returns, that happened a lot in sort of the field plays, right? And I don't think you see that in renewables. That's not what the returns look like. Right. They look different in that they feel more like an annuity in that and so to answer your question more directly, who's investing in these? They are insurance companies. They are pension funds. They are the baby boomers of this country that are really just looking for yield on their existing capital. They're not trying to double their money over the next five years. They have a nest egg. Okay. And what they want is just nice, steady, stable, consistent returns. And so... We see a lot of institutional money okay. sitting on the sidelines and, and, and trying to get in. I mean, every, granted, it's not the scale in terms of total investment that you guys see in the oil and gas field, but you know, every week it's another you know couple billion dollar fund being raised by somebody. And it's often a sort of clubbed institutional money where you've got multiple pension funds or multiple insurance companies injecting you know, a couple hundred million dollars of capital each into a fund. And that fund is designed really to deploy for long-term ownership. Okay. So where most of the capital is going into this business line is really into the actual asset being put in the ground. And once the asset's in the ground, again, every day that the sun comes up, it's going to produce money. Right. And, and, and there's, 
there's not a lot, you know, the operational costs are really quite low. You know, on wind projects, you, you know, might get up to, you know, 25% of the income on an average day is going to keep the operations. Mm. But the rest of it is just paying back that capital investment. In solar, it's even less. And so for my parents and for, you know, pension funds that are just trying to make sure that their retirees are getting a check every month, they might have a couple hundred million dollars, a couple billion dollars to go deploy. And it shouldn't be all their investment. We need, you know, they diversify. But what they're saying is like, look, people will need energy. The sun shines, the wind blows. And so long as we're getting, you know, in the high single digits, maybe low double digits, that's good. And honestly, I mean, I don't know about your investments, but for me, if if I have a really stable, solid performer getting 8% a year, and I'm ecstatic. Sure. Yeah, no, nowadays, yeah, I get what you're saying. And, and I guess, so in the renewable space, you're not at the mercy Aside from raw materials, perhaps increasing maybe the cost to manufacture goods, but you're not at the mercy of commodity prices as much, are you? Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. I think commodity prices they do affect our overall ability, and and I think you know, but it's those commodity prices often are a result. When I was talking about the scaling, yeah, temporary supply demand curve shortages. So imagine if you have an industry that's set to produce. A very pertinent example from today is the industry's, this, again, going back to what I know best, the solar industry is designed to satisfy about 130, 130 gigawatts of new solar next year. Mm. Yesterday, Xi Jinping in China said that decarbonization was going to be one of their goals in their next five-year plan. I saw that, yeah. And 60%, they're aiming for a peak carbon utilization by before 2030 yeah and net zero by 2060 right if by doing that they're effectively going to drive an additional 50 ish gigawatts so essentially they're increasing the total global demand almost overnight by 50 percent so now if you're talking about raw materials and commodities things that go into their aluminum glass Really, like really, like high quality glass has been one of the ones that starts to emerge. Mm. Silver and silicon. Yeah. Huh. So I had a question come up and then I I lost it, but I'm going to continue down the list here. So switching gears a little bit, California has obviously been experiencing some challenges with regards to rolling blackouts. They've got, you know, the fires are happening, lots of things going on there. But what do you think the biggest problem is? for them from like an electricity supply perspective and and how do they overcome that considering the summers are only going to get hotter and things are only going to get worse so to speak at least in the short term what is the reason for that because i've seen different opinions and, and different thoughts on that and and yeah i guess just out of curiosity because a lot of people say oh well look at california they you know they're they're so big on renewables, but yet they can't even supply electricity to their people. And, and I think people apply a few data points and then apply it to a more complex problem that they don't truly understand. Yeah. And so like high level, like what is fundamentally going on to where like, why are people having to be in blackouts? Yeah. So I will be 
very cautious here in part because to tell you the truth, I have, I feel that I have a little bit more of a limited understanding of the true fundamentals underlying that market's challenges. Okay, sure. I don't want to overly draw conclusions because I, I really, I really am not certain if there's a single root cause. Gotcha. A couple of the factors that, you know, that I have seen, one is really maintenance of existing infrastructure. And I think if you were to take a view of maybe some of the folks on the judicial side that have really come down heavy on PG&E as an example, think of the campfire and, and the outcome of that. Yeah. You know, in the press to push for the best possible returns for your investors, there may be some elements that are happening at some utilities and in some locations where you might do 85% because that last 15% likely isn't going to happen and and it probably isn't going to pr- cause a problem. Yeah. And that problem, if it does cause a problem, is probably not going to be catastrophic. And so you see and, and have seen some utilities, and in particular PG&E, it's, this is not the first time. If, if you recall, there was the natural gas explosion they had, you know, I think, over a dozen years ago Okay. that killed people in San Francisco because of you know, not really following through mm. on maintenance plans. Okay. And so I think there's, that is an element of like, look, we've got aging infrastructure and that's nothing on PG&E. That's just general. Right. <laughs> We're at the end of the life cycle of the water pipes that are in this town. Sure. <laughs> and so people are underspending there. I think you also have the challenge of the climate is getting hotter the fire seasons are longer the past forest man, you know forest management practices haven't been followed through to and and now we have this sort of backlog of you know healthy fire hasn't burned through in smaller patches over the last 50 years we also have had this sort of ex-urban sprawl when when things you know when a little tiny apartment in San Francisco costs a million and a half dollars, people are going to get the heck out of Dodge and you're going to start having houses go further and further and further back. I mean, you're from BC. Mm. When a big fire happens in BC, a bunch of trees burn, but there's not a lot of people generally impacted. Right. It's not as dense because it's not as much exurban sprawl as right. what we're seeing in Sonoma, California, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we... We have those, and then we have the challenge of we do have a grid that is in transition in terms of its generation sources Mm -hmm. and the demand and the net demand after distributed generation. It is a harder problem to solve. Sure. And so... You know, those are challenges. We also have challenges of community choice aggregation. So by allowing these CCAs to happen, you start having people abandoning utilities and and to go to these small community choice aggregators because these CCAs are willing to be more green faster. Yeah. Well, that leaves PG&E and others with somewhat abandoned assets that are partially unfunded and and so I don't think there's a single answer. And I, right. I think 
like many complex problems, there are a multitude of factors that are contributing. And the challenge is, to your point, in an age where we can select the data points easily <laughs> that confirm our own biases, yeah. you can, if there's a dozen problem contributing factors, you can pick the three that best fits your need. Right. And maybe the answer is probably those three, but it's also six or eight others that, I didn't even do my math right there. <laughs> Nine <laughs> others. Sure. That are also contributing to the problem. Yeah. I mean, I listen to several podcasts, one of which is Green Tech Media. Love those guys and ladies that are get on the show. And then the interchange that is also, I think, Green Tech Media. And so they've talked about it. And and I, I'm so elementary when it comes to understanding that. But yeah, it seems like anyone who talks about it has a different perspective and, and understanding. But yeah, it's it's like you said, I, I think reiterating the point, like it's not a single problem. It's not like, oh, they don't have enough electricity to give, period. And oh, they've you know, and, and you hear even talk, talks or I've read things like it goes back even to where there wasn't necessarily like they were there was such a hard push to go renewables to where then they kind of withheld the opportunity for fossil fuels to generate electricity to which then now it's causing problems. And, and then you talk about the infrastructure. And so it's but again, I get so abstract, <laughs> I think, These to are, a lot I mean, of people. I mean, I, I don't know. I think there's a couple other pieces that one, these are extreme events. Right. Right? Yeah. And maybe more extreme events are becoming more common. Yeah. And that might be the case. The other piece, though, is it's kind of a testament to the electricity grid in general. Yeah. That we are used to the lights being on 99.99999% of the time. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare on a Friday at 9 p.m. The electricity company calls and says, look, you're not going to have power for, you know, till 5 p.m. Right. And so... We're used to that, and I think that's just a testament to the actual proper operation of the grid. Yeah. And it's a really complex problem, even when things are well. Yeah. It's, it's actually an incredibly complex problem that gets solved every day, every 60, 160th of a second. Sure. So I think that's, you know, that's one element of it. The other piece is that I do understand that some of the decisions that are made when it comes to targeted blackouts and brownouts, whether they be for safety, because the lines overhead could fall and start another fire, nah. or they would because concerns about supply demand in a heat wave, a record heat wave. I mean, 120 degrees <laughs> in LA. That's insane. Two weeks earlier... Death Valley hit a global on the planet record of 131 degrees. Two weeks later, in the center of a city of 10 million, it hit 120. And so in that type of situation, it's pretty extreme. And so you got to, you know, hmm, their hmm. choice was to either let some people go without power for some period of time, or if the grid had actually failed, you would take down massive swaths. I mean, you would take down the entire state plus Nevada, plus Arizona, plus parts of New Mexico, Colorado, like Oregon, Washington. It would have gone out half the western grid would have gone down. And so sometimes it's a choice that people, the grid operators have to make. Yeah. And a testament to them because they keep 
they keep the lights on 99.9999% of the time. Yeah. No, that, that's a great, great perspective on that. So switching gears a little bit again, going back to, you kind of actually mentioned BP. And I was actually with some folks from BP last night on the drilling side. And yeah, they, I mean, BP certainly is changing the direction, allocating resources to renewables, even cutting production, which is their bloodline. I mean, that's where a lot of the revenue comes from. Actually, yeah, I had it here. So they recently came out and said that they plan on cutting production by 40% by 2030 to help meet its uh, zero emission goal by 2050. And on top of that, they plan on investing $5 billion per year into renewables by 2030. So what are your thoughts on that? And, and is it coming from your side of things? Is it pleasing to see that? Or, I mean, does it does it really, I mean, is it a topic of conversation when you're, you know, BSing around the table with, with, with the guys at the office or ladies at the office? Or, I mean, what 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 is your kind of opinion on that? Or Yeah, so we have seen, I mean, we, we've existed in a space where utilities have increasingly involved themselves into what used to be a, a niche, you know, I always call it the ponytail brigade type of industry. (laughs) Yeah. If you look back 20 years ago, right? (laughs) But I mean, as soon as folks that, you know, as soon as you start sort of putting a bunch of JDs and MBAs and PhDs in a room, and it's really sort of sophisticated up when we had utilities come. And so it doesn't really surprise me that as the growth is there in the market, people who are really capable at solving scale problems, purchasing problems, complex engineering problems, mm-hmm. capital deployment problems, it doesn't surprise me that not just BP, Shell, Ecuador, you know, it it's it has been happening. Both Shell and BP long, you know, several years ago started investing in solar development shops. And owning solar development assets, it doesn't surprise me that you know BP and Equinor partner. I mean, I think that the offshore space, there are few utilities and very few of the, you know, descendants of the Ponytail Brigade have the sophistication to really handle the complex challenges of working in offshore conditions. Mm-hmm. And and I know for certain that you know the folks from BP know how to how to engineer and purchase and solve problems in those really tough environments. So it doesn't surprise me when they buy, you know, a $1.2 billion stake in an offshore wind project. It it makes sense. I think it'll continue. I think sometimes the messaging, you know, when you think about, you know, publicly traded companies, the messaging of, of the why sometimes gets changed and so when i hear that you know they're just going to start dialing back on production you know there are portions of the fields that are ju- that perhaps the majors have that they're like that that portion of the field is just not going to be on the margin anytime soon yeah and so why do i need to even you know i may have been forecasting that someday that the prices return and i will you know I'll finish off those wells or I'll, I'll expand that field. Yeah. You know, it might feel a little bit like, well, it's also a convenient time right. to start writing down yeah. some of the 
aspirational plays that happened in the oil and gas space Mm -hmm. that maybe were conceived of, you know, 10, 12 years ago and and are just sort of sitting on the edges. No, that's interesting you say that because, I mean, even the folks that I was with, that was one of the things is it's it's not like they're going to go start cutting production in the Permian or in the Eagle (laughs) Ford. Like it's, it's, I think they're, they're shedding fat. And while you may be able to, you know, collectively reduce X amount where it's not necessarily generating good money to then, okay, let's maximize what we have in the honey holes that we do have. And yeah, just maybe be a more efficient on how we run the business. And and yeah, because depending on commodity price, if, if you're sitting there at 70 and $80 bales, well then you're going to go explore and you're, and you're going to tap into areas that the cost of producing, you know, that the break even maybe $65. Well now here we are sitting at 40 may not see 60 for five or 10 years, who knows? But yeah, so that part of it is, is certainly, I mean, it's interesting even to hear you say that. Cause I think that's the general consensus and it makes sense. I mean, yeah, 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 why waste your time with other stuff and reallocate some resources, maximize the good plays and take advantage of, you know, what else is out there. And I'm under, my suspicion is that we will return back, you know, as we continue through the transition that's happening in the electricity sector. Yeah. We will return back to very high prices and very healthy margins at some point in oil and gas. and, and Sure. But it's always been the, the history of that industry from an outsider's perspective that, you know, the industry, ba- you know, bangs against the ceiling <laughs> and then it bangs against the floor and yeah. it almost never exists in between. And oh, so yeah. that's challenging. And, you know, I was speaking with a gentleman the other day who had a, a small oil and gas business and he was really doing some soul searching about where he was, you know, whether he was going to continue with where he was at or try and make a an industry move. And I said, you know, it's is really a testament to the fact that, you know, you've got a shop of seven people and you've been able to continue to exist in tough times and still do well in tough times, you know, while there's opportunity over here, you know, it, it really is a testament. And so, you know, I think we're going to see a couple more swings and that that pattern of boom times and bust times will continue in the oil industry. <laughs> yeah, probably so. Certainly long after I'm dead. And, yeah. <laughs> and it will continue to be part of our energy mix long after I'm dead. Yeah. And I do, you know, well, I firmly believe that a transition is underway. That transition is, you know, might last the entire length of my children's life. Sure. And at the end of my children's life, maybe just maybe we'll have reached some of those aspirational goals that we talked about. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's a a great part to end on. But before I, normally I like to ask some personal questions before logging off. And so nothing too invasive, but so again, switching gears, but what would you, I mean, you're obviously an adventurous gentleman. I mean, you lived in the mountains, you know, you skiing and I'm sure you hike and all the rest of it. But when's the last time you've tried something for the very first time? Ooh, a good question last time i tried something for the very first time in the age of covid this is a tougher question i'm usually more adventurous i can ask another one and it it, it could sink it could even be something you ate or it could have been it doesn't necessarily have to be you know an exotic adventure it could have been just something simple maybe you did with your kids or 
So I'm absolutely, I'm like allergic to habit. Okay. <laughs> so as soon as I start doing things, like I recognize like, wait, I've done this like seven times in a row. I immediately start like practically breaking out in mental hives. <laughs> okay. I like to cycle. So I'm a road cyclist. For me, it's, it's actually pretty often. It's not a big deal, but I try, I don't think I ever go more than a, a few weeks without going down a road that I've never been down. It just, the process of getting lost a little bit, even if it's not really lost. Sure. But going a different way, trying a different thing, and like just going a different route. Yeah. It's always fun. Well, that's that sense of adventure, right? Like what's a little bit of the unknown, you, the, the excitement of what, what's behind the door that you haven't been through. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you can imagine in the time of COVID when yeah. everything is the same every yeah. day, usually I'm breaking out in mental hives. Hey, look, I, I get it, man. So what's something about you that not many people know about? And then it could be people you work with, an interesting hobby that you, yeah. you know what I mean? Of the ones that I'm willing to disclose, I will say that I used to be a ski racer. Okay. I grew up at like 9,000 feet of elevation. My parents moved to the mountains in the 70s to like smoke dope and teach skiing. Yeah. Right? Hey, there's nothing wrong so, with that. So, <laughs> yeah, I probably through most of middle school and high school, I missed about a third of my school days. No way. To go ski and ski race. And, you know, at my peak, I was like... I would say one full notch beneath Olympians. So people who I skied with and skied against and usually lost to were Olympians. I do tell my, you know, the one I get to tell my kids is Bodie Miller, who used to be a a ski racer. So I beat Bodie Miller once. No way. Isn't Bodie Miller a gentleman who associates a lot with Joe Rogan? I think he does. Yeah. Okay. Because that name sounds super familiar. He's he's yeah. a nut, right? No, like, he's, he's crazy. He's, he's like I've heard, and, and and I think it's the same gentleman. But like he would go out and party, okay. like till like wee hours of the morning, and then get up and just crush it, uh, or maybe not even sleep. Is that the same gentleman? It, I'm taking. Put it this way: if you're a downhiller, so there's a great book. It's an old ass book. It's called Right on the Edge of Crazy. Okay. It's an old downhill skiing book. Super nerdy. Not even all that well written, but okay. it's, it's, <laughs> if you if you are crazy enough to put skis on and intentionally make as few turns as possible and hit speeds of 80, 90, you know, now closing in on 100 miles an hour in a three millimeter downhill suit when it's 14 degrees outside. Oh, and by the way, you do like the training when it's 14 below and the weather sucks. And if you're stupid enough to do that and adventurous enough and as risk accepting enough to do that, yeah. which I am, <laughs> yeah, you you probably have a couple screws loose. <laughs> nice. I can identify a little bit. Well, one last question I have, a little bit more macro level, but is there a message you'd like to relay assuming everyone in energy is listening to right now? Macro level, the energy transition is underway. And whether you agree with the premises that are underlying that transition or not it's important to understand that it is happening and so now you you get to choose about what you want to do you can choose to dig in and fight against that tide 
And there will be plenty of people that do, and, and there will be lots of money to be made fighting against that tide. Right. And that's okay. An alternative, maybe not the only, is to think about what your broader skills are. Mm-hmm. And if truly, you know, there's a sector of this energy economy that is going to be doubling and doubling again over the next, over your career. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, which one's going to make me happier? Right. Is it the one where I'm in a growing industry, applying my skills, bringing my engineering, accounting, lawyer, you know, sales capabilities in, or am I, you know, am I going to let that shit pass by? Right. I think, I think energy is energy. And I think, you know, people in this particular sector often... But don't, it's not a, you know, we check your, we check your carbon card at the door. It's, are you willing to work hard and, and produce results? Yeah. And, and for anybody that likes to work hard and produce results, I think that this transition provides not a threat, but it provides an opportunity. For sure. No, that's a great message, man. I really appreciate that. Well, before we close out here, I'd like to take a few moments to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for May 2021. This month we have four events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our online events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the 20 YPO's networking mixer at the Houston Club on May 25th. Next, we have our three online events, the Post-Industrial Summit Series from May 4th to June 22nd, the Data Fabric and Data Ops webinar on May 5th, and the Maritime Career Day hosted by Women Offshore on May 21st. Other than these events, OGGN has a live stream this month titled Identifying and Evaluating Advantage Oil Projects on May 5th. So make sure to check that out on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information. You can also find more information about that or any of the live streams or events we have coming up also on Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for May. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Great, thanks. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Danny, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad we got yeah, to do man. this this two-part series, which will be into one. Perfect. But... I think maybe one of the most important things I would like for you to, to share is where can people find reputable, whether it's data or information, or, or if someone's just interested in the space of whether it's climate change, whether it's renewable energy, instead of just going on Facebook and, and reading all the junk, what are some, like, your, your top three resources, whether it's a website or whether, I mean, yeah. maybe it's a hard question, but or even just like, where can, where can you point people to get rid of the fluff and get to some real good information? Yeah. So on climate change, I don't have a perfect answer for you. I think Fair quite enough. frankly, it's most reputable mainstream media. Most will be able to provide facts that you can take with. Sure. As far as my, Industry, IHS, mm-hmm. which plays, which probably gets ten times the amount of money from oil and gas as they do from renewables. Sure, 
IHS is one. I use Wood McKenzie, you'd reference. Mm-hmm. Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Yeah, that's a good one. Those are the places that, when it comes to sort of the news and the, the day-to-day happenings, yeah. those are the places that I go. Perfect. I love it. If people want to get to know more about you, I mean, LinkedIn, yep. feel free to add you. We'll put the RAS group link in the show notes if people want to check out the website and see Great. what's going on. Maybe there's a bunch of people on the sidelines looking for jobs. You never know. They might be <laughs> might be searching. Great. We've got openings up and down the list. And yeah, if you like solving problems and having an entrepreneurial spirit, it's a fun place to be. Excellent. Well, appreciate the conversation. And for you, you know, having the vulnerability to come on an oil and gas show. It's been great. do it. Yeah, awesome. Well, everyone out there, always remember, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.